Let's go back to John chapter 4 again tonight. And you can turn there and I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you so much for your spirit tonight. We, th we thank you for the wonderful gift of the Holy Ghost that was sent to us because of the blood and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We honor that gift tonight that you've given to us, Father. Hallelujah. And we just ask, Father God, that the Holy Spirit would have his way tonight. Lord, help us all, everyone in this building, to yield to you that you might do what you want to do, Lord God, in our hearts, in our minds. There are needs in every life represented here. You know the heart cries, Lord. You know the questions. You know the desires. You know, Father God, what we need better than we know ourselves, or we don't even know how to pray as we ought without the Holy Spirit. And so it is with the word, Lord. I'm asking you to help me to yield that you might move us through the word according to the need and according to your heart's purpose. We will give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 4, and tonight we want to hone in on one verse here, two verses. Uh, we'll start with verse 23. Jesus says to the woman at the well, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I really want to hone in on this tonight and really pay attention to what it's saying because it's very, very powerful. He talks about true worshipers. Jesus has come to her in an hour when there are worshipers and religious folk all over the place. But he makes a differentiation and he says true worshipers. The hour is coming now and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. A couple of things. He was about to, he knew, not that many days from this point, though this is early in his ministry, he would be crucified. And he had a whole lot of followers and there was one day before he was even crucified that many of the followers, because of something he said, turned around and quit following him. And he knew the day was coming when he was going to be crucified on the cross, and that was going to bring a severe separation of those that were true worshipers and those that were just following the religious fad. And there were those that were true worshipers that were confused, uh, such as Peter, um, even denied the Lord, and they went through it when he died. But there were a whole lot of folk that were out there screaming, crucify him, that had been following his ministry just days before. So hardship, persecution is always going to bring a division to show the true worshipers from the false and is something God has used from the beginning and he will continue to use it. He also knew that after his death and resurrection at the beginning of the church, 
that that church was going to be persecuted, that Jerusalem was going to be persecuted, that the temple was going to come down. And I really believe those things were in his mind when he said, the hour cometh and now is. He knew that division was coming between the nominal worshipers and the true worshipers. And the Lord allows these things because that's how he disdained distracts, just, I can't think of the word, pulls out his treasure from the dross, pulls out the gold, pulls out the precious stones and the gems. He lets the heat be turned up. He lets things happen. So, and we can look in the Middle East today and see the absolutely beautiful true worshipers that are just being born again there left and right in the midst of persecution in the midst of death for naming the name of Christ, you would think nobody would want him. But when people that are true worshipers in their spirit find out that he's the true Christ, they say yes, and they begin to risk their life. And we see it in China. It's been going on in China for, for um, at least 70 years. And, and before that, there's always been persecution in China and many other places in this, in this earth, we see in the most persecuted times and places the most vibrant Christians. That's when you really decide, some of us surprise ourselves, when we really find out what's in us. Are we true worshipers? And the Father is seeking such to worship him. We don't really think of the Father as seeking so much. We think of us, you know, we seek truth and we seek this and we seek that. But to think of the Father on the throne seeking, seeking. We know that Second uh, uh, Chronicles 16.9 says, the eye of the Lord goes to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are perfect toward him. Hallelujah. We cannot be perfect, but we can have a heart that's perfectly turned towards him. And the Holy Spirit says that when we have a mindset to suffer and to, to walk as Christ did, Paul said that if we have that, that the Holy Ghost will even reveal to us the areas where we're off. And he will keep us perfect or he will take us into perfection as long as we're on this earth. It's that journey. But there is a wholeheartedness and a true heart that the Father is seeking. You look through the whole Old Testament, and you see the many times he, was, he, he just got sick of it, and he used strong language, saying your sacrifices just, they stink. I hate them. Get them away from me. That's how he feels about untrue worship. The Father is seeking true worshipers. I want to be one. I want to be one that the Father's eye can stop and say, there's one, and that I can produce a true worship that blesses him, that pleases him. Uh, Sister Gretchen was singing that song last week, um, let the meditations of our heart, and I think the words of our mouth, be acceptable in thy sight. And it starts with what's in the heart, because people can say words all the time, True worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. You know, the woman at the well did not have truth, but she had a thirsty spirit. 
and the Lord began to give her the truth to go with it. Some of us are strong in one side and weak in the other, but God is looking for both. If we're weak in the word and we want to be great worshipers, that worship is very inclined to go off if we don't hold to the truth and seek the truth, root ourselves in the truth, correct ourselves in the truth. That's what happened to Israel. That's how they got to the place where he said, I don't want your sacrifices. Don't, don't sing to me. Don't, don't shout to me. I don't want to hear it because you're, you're off. Your heart is off. Your heart is wrong. Spirit and truth. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Spirit and truth. Let's go to uh, 1 Samuel 1. Praise you, Jesus. When our spirit and our truth, when our, when our hearts are right, when our worship is in spirit and in truth, there will be fruit evidenced, correct fruit. What we actually do will evidence whether our worship is true. Praise you, Lord. And we can deceive ourselves. The New Testament talks about it, growing deceived, deceiving ourselves, and we can go deeper and deeper into our deception if we don't have tender hearts towards the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 1. So we have this woman, Hannah, here. And we all know the story of Hannah in this building tonight. But uh, let's point out some things with Hannah. Because true worship in spirit and in truth is developed all the days of our life. And there are levels and there are depths. And as soon as we relax and feel comfortable and kick back, we can easily go into a fleshly place. And so when things are going on in your life, like I spoke about persecution to begin with, hardship, what did... What did uh, was it James that said to rejoice in those things? To rejoice? Let's look at that really quickly. Let's go to James. One. Come on, Bible. Okay, James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Count it all joy, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and he goes on to explain how to deal with it when you are in uh, temptations and in hardship. Because uh, God provides what we need to walk through it. How, when was the last time you asked God for the wisdom 
and the patience to walk through the trial that you find yourself in. What do we usually pray? God, get me out of it. God, stop it. God, take it away. But it is the very thing that is working that beautiful patience in us that we may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Paul said that I've learned whatever state I'm in, whether I have a lot, whether I have a little, to be content. You see, these are, these are fundamental things to the Christian who wants to be used by God, who wants to be full of God. If we don't learn these simple truths and let the Holy Ghost walk us through them, stay in the word and walk through them, we will remain baby Christians that just waiting, waiting for our life to end and won't accomplish much for God. Because the enemy is always going to be throwing stuff at us. And it's for our good. You see, God, God decides what trials we have. And the word says that he won't give us more than we can bear, but he'll make a way of escape. He decides what instrument comes on his child to buff him up, to, to cut off the edges, to file. It's, the enemy may think he's doing something, but it's all in God's hands if we're committed to him. God is looking for the kind of people that in the midst of a trial can say, I love you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. You're faithful, Lord. It doesn't matter what this is. I thank you that you're in control of my life. It doesn't feel good. I don't like it, but you're still God. Grant me patience. Grant me wisdom. Don't even let me pray the wrong thing. Teach me to pray. Let the words of my mouth be acceptable in thy sight. Solomon said to, to, uh, to us in Ecclesiastes, to his son, hey, when you go in the house of God, don't be hasty to talk. Because God's way up in heaven, and you're down here on earth, and what you say will probably be foolish because you can't see the whole thing. So be still and be quiet and reverent and remember that God is God. He wasn't saying don't talk to God. He said don't be hasty. We have to think through, think through according to this wisdom that he's given us. Praise you, Lord. So we look at this woman, Hannah. In verse 5, um, before verse 5, it talks about how that she was barren. Her, her husband, Elkanah, had another wife who kept having children. She could have no children, and she was growing more and more despondent, more and more hurt, more and more upset. This is a trial that had been going on with her for years. Um, I don't know how many, how many sons and daughters, to all her sons and daughters, how many sons and daughters did the other one already have? Does it tell us at this point? She had children. Hannah no, had no children. Somewhere in the story tells us that she had several. So by that we know that it had been going on for years, a trial that had been going on for years in which this woman is not content. She's unhappy, but it was completely God, verse 5, but unto Hannah, Elkanah gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut her womb. The Lord had shut her womb. This was a trial. This was a hardship that was designed and orchestrated by God alone. Hannah didn't understand it, and Hannah was heartbroken. She wanted to give her husband a child. She wanted a child. She wanted to be a, a worthy woman. Um, at that time, a, a woman's greatest worth was childbearing, and here she was. She couldn't have one. Even though the Lord gave her husband a heart to love her, that wasn't satisfying to her. She had something 
deeper, a deeper desire. Even though he gave her an extra portion of food, that probably implies that he probably gave her an extra portion of everything. He was probably very generous. She probably had pretty clothes. She probably had better servants. She probably had a nicer tent or whatever. But those things don't satisfy when God puts a deeper hunger inside of you, a deeper desire. Uh, verse 6, her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. As he did so year by year, in verse 7, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so Penina provoked her, and therefore she wept and didn't eat. She was seriously hurting. She was so heartbroken. She was so badgered by this other woman. She was so sad that she was crying, and she didn't even want to eat anything. And uh, verse 8, then Elkanah, her husband, then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? And I don't think that that was all male pride of, you know, I'm so awesome. I think what he was trying to say, I think that was definitely part of it, but I think he was also thinking about all the things he did for her, all the ways he blessed her, because, you know, it wasn't always the case that women got any attention or any blessings. Many of them were just treated like servants. And, he, and I think he was frustrated because he tried so hard to make her happy because he loved her so much. And um, I just always think this is a, a beautiful lesson for marriage because we are to be partners that encourage one another in the Lord, that strengthen one another, that pick one another up, but always remember that it is the Lord that satisfies the heart. And to um, expect your mate, your spouse, to feel that is unreasonable. And you need to have the wisdom to understand that your greatest satisfaction is going to come with your relationship with the Lord. And that's what you're there for. You're to, I mean, yes, there's, there's love and romance and all of that. But ultimately, it's the Lord that wants to be the love of our life, the rock of our life, even in marriage. Verse 9, so Hannah rose up after they had eaten and after they had drunk. She didn't eat or drink. She sat there with them and suffered. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. She was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. So she is here at the house of the Lord. And one thing I want to bring out is hardships are going to move us on a national level, on a church level, and on an individual level. Hardships will push us to worship, true worship, if we will let them. We can spend years running around everywhere else trying to get comfort for what bothers us, or we can let it push us to the Lord, whatever it is. As I look at you tonight, I know that everyone in here represents a hardship, an unmet desire, a deep wanting of something in your life. Let that thing push you to the Lord. If you're a child of God, that's what it's designed to do. We do the opposite and let us draw us from the Lord. Hannah could have very easily said in her heart, you know, God doesn't answer my prayers. This has been years. God's not very good to me and drawn away from the Lord. 
I mean, she could have ate and drunk. She could have been a drunkard. She could have looked to, to, to satisfy the hurt of her heart in, in alcohol or in whatever, a million ways. But she didn't. She took her heartache and she came to the Lord. There was something of beauty inside Hannah that the Lord saw from the beginning. And he knew she would come to him. He knew she would come to the end of herself with this. So she's there, and, and one thing that I want to point out, as the Lord brings us to be true worshipers in spirit and in truth, there is always going to be opposition. Always. 100% always. Whatever depth of worship God is trying to pull out of you, besides your own head and your own voice that will always try to stop you from letting it go and letting it loose and laying yourself out before God, whether it be in a time of joy or a time of need, that true worship, there's always opposition. Why? Because the Father seeks it. Satan knows the Father seeks it. Satan knows it pleases the heart of God. What did that, that uh, Second Chronicles 16.9, his eye goes to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are perfect towards him, that he may show himself strong on their behalf. Satan doesn't want that happening with anybody. He's seen that happen before. And he fights that. He fights to keep it in us. Um, let's keep our place here for just a second and go over to Mark 10, 46. When we become worshipers in spirit and in truth, things happen. God is looking for it. God's searching for it. God finds it. God sees it. God responds. He is true to his word. He will always respond to the true worshiper. Mark 10 and 46. Six. They came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He began to cry out. He began to cry out. He knew he had heard, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He had heard the stories. This is a blind man. He could hear. He could hear people far away talking and having discussions. And he was hearing it all over the place. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus healed my daughter. Jesus gave us bread to eat when there was nothing there. Jesus raised my son from the dead. Jesus opens blinded eyes. Jesus heals lepers. And he's hearing this. And faith is building in his heart, and all of a sudden he hears a stir and a rumbling, and he says, what's going on? And they said, it's Jesus of Nazareth, and he begins to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And what happens? Hallelujah. Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And he's crying with a loud voice. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. It happens every time, one way or another. Something is going to oppose your crying out, your reaching out with a true spirit of worship. Something's going to try to stop it. But he cried the more a great deal. This man understood he had nothing to lose. Talk about hardship and persecution. 
back in that time, if you were blind, what did they ask Jesus when he healed the one blind man? He said, who sent him or his parents, right? So blind Bartimaeus was, you know, he was a piece of dirt. He was that way because he deserved it. I mean, it's almost like they believed in that, uh, you know, that uh, reincarnation stuff where, you know, you're like that because you were bad in a, in, a, in a past life or something. You know, it's, it's just that stupid. They had that kind of thinking. Something bad, and we're kind of that way today. Something bad happened to him, so it's his fault. He's less than us. He's, you know, be quiet, you old blind, dirty man. Just be quiet. Don't bother the master. You know, important people are, are, have things that they have need of. Who cares what you need? My point is, he had nothing to lose. You and I often have something to What will they think? He knew what they thought. Shut up, Bartimaeus. That's what they thought. But you and I are often like, what are they going to think? Oh, I don't want to offend. Oh, I don't want to. Oh. And sometimes our very life depends on getting a hold of the Lord. But we're so worried about everything else that we don't cry out. That we don't. You know, this is an act of worship. What was blind Bartimaeus saying? He was saying, I know you can heal me. I know you have the power I know you're the son of David. That's his way of saying, I know you're the Messiah. You have the power to heal me. And I'm going to cry it out. Oh, that we would be like that. And Jesus stood still. And we know the story. He, he said, bring him to me. Um, call him over here. And all those people that were saying, shut up, shut up. Says, oh, Bartimaeus, Jesus wants you. This is my friend Bartimaeus. They probably gathered around him and helped him get there. That's how people are. Oh, praise God. In verse 52, Jesus said to him, Go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You can turn here if you want to, but I'm going to go to Hebrews and read it in Hebrews 11. How do we be a worshiper in spirit and in truth? You know, we can fall into form and religion and not even realize it if the Holy Spirit doesn't show us. You know, praise God, pass the butter, praise God. Yeah, it becomes like an and or a you know, you know. <laughs> and uh, we need to let the Lord wash just that, what is it? It's like a religious... Um, just garment we start wearing, you know, with Christianese, and, and uh, we need the Lord to get us to that place where when we say praise the Lord, we mean it, or we don't say it. When we say Jesus, that means something. We don't say it absent-mindedly. Uh, Hebrews 11, by faith, verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was found not, because God translated him for before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. So what the Holy Ghost chose to bring out through Paul right here, I believe Paul wrote this, um, of all the things that could have been said about Enoch, the one who was translated, he didn't even see death. He was translated to heaven. Wouldn't that be nice? Why did that happen to him? The only thing we're told is that he pleased God. And then we go into verse 6, but without faith... It is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
So worship comes in many forms. It comes in praise. It comes in thanks. And it also comes into crying out to him with a heart that believes that if I cry out to him and I diligently seek him, he is going to reward me. When our heart becomes like that, you can go through a trial for years and that trial's around you, but you know in your heart that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. He's not late. He's not behind. He knows what you're going through and it's okay because that's where he has you. And you continue to wait. I mean, we read this chapter, and it says as many of these died in faith, not seeing the promise. That's a true worshiper in spirit and in truth. The truth is greater than our circumstance. If I never see that answer I'm crying out for, I still receive it. I still receive it. It might happen when I'm dead. It might happen at the resurrection. I don't know. But he's heard me, and he's faithful. And that takes a, a heart that understands eternity. We need eternity to be more real to us than today. And that's something I've been praying about since I got saved. Make it more real to me when we had children. God, make heaven real to them. Make eternity real to them. Don't let it just be a fairy tale and a story that mom and dad told. Make it real. And the Holy Ghost and the Word of God combined can do that. Hallelujah. So blind Bartimaeus had faith, and he pleased God, and Jesus Christ said, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Hallelujah. We can't please him without faith. He that, we can't even come to him. To come to him, we might think we're coming to him, but we can't truly approach to him unless we believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and I'm so glad that he is. Hallelujah. He could be a God that doesn't listen. We've got people all over the world bowing down to idols of stone that don't listen. And some of them are so much more faithful than we are. How many times a day do the Muslims pray? Five? To a faithful Muslim? Think about it. And how many testimonies have I read of the heartache of people trying with all their heart to please Allah, and he never answers. And he never answers. And that's what makes them so ripe for Christianity when the message is brought to them. Those that want to be true worshipers, and they're looking for the truth. Okay, so she prays. And we got to the point here in 1 Samuel. I'm sorry, I went back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1. She's in bitterness of soul, and she prays to the Lord, and she weeps sore, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and forget not thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will, give unto, I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. This is so beautiful. All of these years of the Lord keeping her womb shut was to bring her to this place of surrender to the Lord, of true worship. The thing she wanted most personally for herself, we see her offering that up to the Lord. And that is so beautiful. This is a true act of worship. She's offering it up to the Lord. She knows he is the only one that can open her womb. She knows he is the only way to get this answer. And 
she's come to the place where she says, it's yours. I still want it because he put that desire in her, but it's yours. I'm going to give him to you, and he's going to worship you. What is so beautiful about this, if you will step back and look at the story, there were a lot of people crying out to God, and this woman, Hannah, became the focus point of, of God answering many, many prayers. Um, we're going we're gonna to finish this little part, but then we're going to jump ahead. And uh, it came to pass, in verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Some people say the original language means he slapped her. Some people say that it means he was just focused and looking and noticed her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart. See, this is so cool. Blind Bartimaeus was shouting so loud that it made everybody mad and told him, shut up. Here we have a woman who is crying out with all of her heart in silence. Both of them are worshiping in truth and in spirit. So we don't get our eyes on the expression. It's the heart. And God is so awesome. He sees Hannah's broken heart, a broken and a contrite spirit. That's the offering he's looking for. That's the um, sacrifice he's looking for. She spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard, but God heard her. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunken. And I put right here uh, Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, all things are corrupt. This is a man that had allowed his sons in the line of the priesthood, Hophni and Phinehas, to do filthy things. And he was living with it and allowing it, even though a prophet had come to him and said, hey, what are you doing? You love your sons more than me. You better correct them. They're in the house of God, and they're defiling it, and they're hurting my people. And Eli apparently loved his sons more than God because he didn't correct them. And that's, the, and that's the lifestyle that Eli's living. So when a woman comes to the, to the house of God to actually worship God, he's totally blind, totally undiscerning, totally unfamiliar with it. The Word of God says if you jump over to uh, chapter 2, um, and verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Wow. These are priests. These are the priest's sons. These are men working in the house of the Lord. We get so confused by uh, people who are on a pedestal in the religious world, and we just want to believe everybody's right with God and serving God. We need to have discernment. The, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They were wicked. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething, with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he struck into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron of the pot all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came hither. Also before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. 
the people were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. And they were, I'm sorry, but it, it, Eli, Eli's, Eli's one of those situations where it's like, here we have a man of God. As we see, as we read the story, he can hear from God. He's anointed by God. But then we see 13 through 15 over here. And this is, this is the priest. He is allowing his sons and maybe he himself taking the food before it's cooked with the fat, which they weren't supposed to do, out of his greed, breaking the law of God because of the lust of the flesh. Verse 16, if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently, then take as much as your soul wants. And it wasn't even that they minded that they were taking more, they were taking all their food and leaving nothing for the people. They didn't even mind that. They said, let's just do it God's way. Can we just obey the law? Can we just burn the fat off? And they would answer, no, but thou will give it to me now. If not, I will take it by force. That is just so wicked. As it says up above, they were, they were wicked and they knew not God. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Right there, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. They hated it. They did not want to come to the house of God and serve him in these offerings because of the priesthood and their, and their corruption. So how often did anybody bother to come there to cry out to God or to pray? I mean, when was the last time anybody was there praying? Because of Eli and his sons. And so he sees her and he thinks she's drunk and he rebukes her and she is the one who is serving God and it's so ironic because God is about to answer her prayer and put into her womb the answer of the cry of Israel who were crying out to God over Eli and his sons and their wickedness. Samuel would take their place. Though he was not a priest, he would be a prophet. And he would stand between the people and the Lord for a time. You know, God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. Eli wouldn't have thought, even when a prophet came and told him, he wouldn't have thought. He was the priest. His sons were, were in the line. Israel needs us. This is ordained by God. God lets the ark be captured, closes down the whole thing. No more place of worship for over 20 years. We presume so much upon God. I heard for so many years, you know, God will never touch America because we've sent the gospel and we're a Christian nation. And we better, we better look a little deeper. We better look below the surface. Why are we a Christian nation? Why did God allow this nation to be born? with the freedom of religion like the world has never seen, but to do what we used to do and uh, send the gospel. Now we have preachers getting on jets, going to the poorest parts of the world to collect offerings for themselves from the poorest people in the world and come back here with it. And I guarantee you the gospel isn't preached. I've been there. All they're talking about is their corrupted ridiculousness, just like Hophni and Phinehas, 
money, give me your money, give me your money, give me your money. God's not going to bless you if you don't give me your money. That's their message. I'm cool. I'm awesome. Look at my suit. Look at my shoes. Give me your money and God will give, give it to you. That's all they preach when they go out there. And they get on TV and people think they're anointed and we are so deceived. Dear God. So in the womb of Hannah, I love it because she, she didn't know. I don't think she knew. She was just responding to God the best way she knew how and offering him her dearest thing in life. Um, in verse 15, or verse 14, Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put away, from, put away thy wine from thee. How presumptuous. He doesn't even ask. He just assumes and rebukes her, and he's completely wrong. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And she's so humble. Some of us would have wanted to get up and yell at him, especially knowing how corrupt his ministry was. But she says, count not thine handmaiden for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. And then Eli answers and says, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. I don't know if that did or didn't have an effect. He was the high priest. He was anointed of God. We know that the high priest prophesied over Jesus while he was getting ready to try to kill him, the Bible tells us that prophecy moved through him because he was the high priest. And he said, it's better for one man to die for the sins of the nation than the whole nation. He didn't know what he was saying. So it is possible that his blessing did bless her. But one way or another, that side, God heard her prayer. God brought her there. And we see that in verse 19, they rose up in the morning and worshiped the Lord and returned and came to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And then in verse 27, for this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Jump to chapter 2 and verse 11. Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial, and we read all of that. That's so incredible. She keeps her word to the Lord. The only way she knows to give him to the Lord as a minister is to take him to this place where this man rebuked her, where his sons are acting like crazy, wicked people. She takes the dearest thing in her life and gives it to God in truth. Hallelujah. And in spirit, she does exactly what she said she was going to do. How easy would it have been? I'm not giving him to that man. He can't even discern a woman praying. His sons are, are messing up the sacrifices of God. I'm not putting my baby there. I'll find some other way to give him to God. But he was the very antidote. He was the very answer. And I find it fascinating. Again, we're talking about worshiping in spirit and truth and how hardship persecution, difficulty, bring us to that place of deep spiritual worship, bring it to that place of pure truth and purely from the spirit rather than the flesh. And so here's this innocent little child blessed by God, given to this man who's backslidden and his two sons to learn how to serve God. 
and to, he was like a servant to um, Eli. And it was God's will. You know, the anointing of God is a very mysterious thing and a very sovereign thing. And God chose to take the new move that would come through Samuel and put it under the old move that was corrupt and to teach him there and to anoint him there is quite fascinating to me. And it says something about respect. Hannah respected them, though they were backslidden, the leadership. And Samuel respected him and became a servant. Uh, let's go to verse 13. And the child Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. That reminds me of the scripture in the New Testament. Whatever we do, do it not unto men, but do it as unto the Lord, knowing we'll receive our reward from him. And the word tells us if we serve, we serve our, our bosses. We don't have master's day. We serve our bosses, whether they're good or evil, as unto the Lord. If we have a spouse that we don't think is, is, is acting that great in some way or another, we serve them not because they're perfect and, and they're just everything we want them to be. We serve them unto the Lord, knowing of the Lord we will receive, receive our reward. And God can move in a marriage when we surrender and submit ourselves like that in his spirit. He can bring conviction on, on us, on the other party. It's amazing when you surrender and you think it's them, and you get tender before the Lord, and often you find out, hey, it's a whole lot me. But that's not going to happen if we don't surrender to him. And surrendering to him is hard. We want to protect ourselves. We want to defend ourselves. And we just want to go to God and say, look at this and look at that. And, and, and God may call you to be the love. He may call you to be the elixir in that situation, to go in and see things as he sees things. So how many women would have done this? Um, and so the child's ministering the to the Lord and before Eli. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And then the word of the Lord was precious. There was no open vision. And it goes right into the Lord speaking to Samuel that night. And in verse 7, it says, Samuel didn't know the Lord. Neither was the word of the Lord revealed to him yet. But he begins to hear a voice, and all he knew was Eli. He runs to Eli. You know the story. Tells Eli, you're calling me. Here I am. And Eli says, no, it's not me. The second time, uh, he figures it out, and he tells him, it's the Lord calling you. Next time, go lay down and tell the Lord, here I am. Right here, we have the beginning, the switch, the transfer. She went through all of that to have a baby. That was the beginning of the answer. But the child had to grow up under this corrupt ministry for a number of years and learn and be at the place uh, appointed by God. And that was another uh, span of time. We're so in a hurry all the time for God's answers. And it was this night that the Lord chose to spoke to Samuel. It was the right time. He was of the right age. And it's Eli who teaches him to hear the word of the Lord. That's absolutely incredible to me. He knew how to hear the word of the Lord, but he didn't want to hear it where he needed to hear it for himself. So we, we're not going to read it all, but we know that a prophet had already come to him and told him he needed to repent and get things in order, and he didn't listen. And now we have this little Samuel, this little baby prophet, and what is the first thing that the Lord says to Samuel? 
In verse 10, he tells him, speak for your servant hears, just like Eli told him to. Verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows. Because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering. Wow, 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 wow. He went past the point of grace. There was no turning back. When he got that word before, he had time. He had time to repent. He had time to make sacrifices and offerings. He had time to get his sons in line. Now, no more time. And Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. That was his duty. And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Hmm, I guess. Can you imagine this young boy and the high priest? And he has this word from God against him. What a fearful thing. And Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. Samuel, my son. I, I think that that implies tenderness between the two of them. And he said, what is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God, do so to thee and more also if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. Oh, and you go back to that night with his mom there praying and crying out to God in silence for this, for this child. And Samuel told him every wit and hid nothing from him. That right there is indicative of the heart of Samuel and the character of Samuel. You want to be a prophet? All these people going to the school of the prophet, ordering their book for $9.99 and their anointing oil and whatever else. I'm going to be a prophet. This young man said this to the high priest. How fearful is that? That's just like Daniel. The king calls him in and says, what's the writing on the wall? Well, king, it's not good news. That takes such boldness, such sold-outness to God, because as soon as he finished, he knew it could have been off with his head. And this young man, Samuel, knew the same thing. Praise God. Hallelujah. Um, a fear of God. He didn't want to lie. A fear and an honor and a duty to Eli, the high priest. And the discernment. I mean, this was a young man who he'd been raised in the things of the Lord under this man, but he knew he heard from God. And we get so confused, you know, if anybody has any kind of a leadership capacity, we lose all discernment, and we're just so in awe of a man or a woman. But the mixture of the discernment with the tender heart, that is precious. Because when we discern something, we get all ugly and on our high horse, and, and, and want to put other people down. We should be heartbroken. This is the same Samuel that would hear from God, I've rejected Saul, and he was so heartbroken, God had to tell him, snap out of it. Take your horn of oil and go anoint David. And God chooses men like that, Moses, who threw himself between God's wrath and the rebellious children of Israel. 
You want to be a prophet? You want to be a servant of God? It's a heavy thing. Praise you, Lord. Samuel told him every whit in verse 18 and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth good to me. Eli already knew. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. So from that point, we see the rise of the ministry that God put into Samuel and the decreasing of uh, Eli and his sons. I'm not going to read it all, but the, the way that this happens, as you know, the Philistines come and they're battling, and in presumption, they, they lose 4,000 men. Verse 3, verse 2 said that they lost 4,000 men. In verse 3, when the people were come to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Uh, I'm going to insert right in there what maybe they could have done. Let's have a time of fasting and praying and seeking God and humble ourselves and ask him. Good idea? Uh, but that's missing. It goes right into, let's fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. It had become an idol to them. Their religion, the power of God, had become an idol to them. They didn't even ask God. They presumed, in a sense, they were twisting God's arm to give them the victory that they wanted without even checking to see if God was in it. And that reminds me so much of today's faith movement and just everything we're doing in the church today, presuming what God wants and he might not even be with us, and to take the ark of the covenant and what that represented, to take it out of its place and to try to use it for their own will. And I believe it's the same when we, in our will and rebellion and unsubmitted state, try to use the cross of Calvary in the name of Jesus Christ for our own rebellious will, not submitted under the mighty hand of God. In verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring forth the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. The two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were with the ark of the covenant. And verse 5, when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. There was an echo. They shouted. They had so much faith. They were so convinced that they were going to win. Now, they were so glad to see that ark, their religion. That's all it had become to them. That's all God was to them. He thought, they thought he was their servant. And they began to shout. <laughs> Every shout of worship is not in spirit and in truth. Every expression of worship is not in spirit and in truth. And they were shouting so loudly that you would have thought it was in spirit and in truth, if you didn't have discernment. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. It sounded like that to them. It sounded like a true shout of these people with this God, and yet God was not even there. And they said, woe unto us. I mean, he was there. He abided on his ark, but he wasn't there to do what they wanted. 
For there hath not been such a thing hitherto. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, quit yourselves like men, O you Philistines, that you be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. They fought, and Israel was smitten. And we know that the news was brought back to um, Eli in verse 18, and it came to pass when th this, this man that came and told Eli that his sons were killed, not when he mentioned that his sons were killed, when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell back off the seat backwards by the side of the gate and broke his neck, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. It seems he was sitting in the very same place he was sitting when Hannah came with a heavy heart and made that prayer. And it's really, it's really heartbreaking. It's truly a heartbreaking story. And when we miss God individually or as a church or as a nation, it is heartbreaking. But God will always have a people. He's always going to have a Samuel somewhere rising up. But it's our job to be those that worship in spirit and in truth so that we can hear him, so that we can be part of that movement and not part of the movement that's dying, not part of the movement that's going to receive judgment because they come side by side. And you know, nobody can do the discerning for you. We live in a day of great deception in the church. We've got to cry out to God for this heart of truth and this heart of worship. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know the last time that I, that I heard from any of these big ministries, you real altar calls for real repentance and, and real worship. Everything is so canned and so organized and so for the sake of us and not for the sake of God. Our church services are all about us. We've gotten them all written out and we know how it's going to go and we do the songs we like and we say the things we like and we preach the amount of time we like and do we do these things truly for God? Do we really worship him in our services? Do we worship him in our prayer closets or is that all about us too? Trying to take the ark, trying to take the word, trying to take the promises to get what we want. Or do we yield ourselves and call him great and call him mighty and let him develop those desires inside of us that he wants? And are we patient and will we wait for the answers? And do we believe for the answers that he has promised? And are we willing to hear, no, that's not the way I'm going. That's not what I want to give you. That's not what you're going to see. Look over here. Accept this from me. So, you know, it takes maturity. We see people getting their prayers answered. We see people waiting. We see people, God, saying, no, that's not, that's not me. You know, get on your knees and start over. You need to hear from me. You're in the wrong place. We have such a way of just presuming upon God. 
we just keep going forward and asking for God's blessing and then get confused when we find ourselves in the wrong place. And then we can't even discern between I'm going through a trial like James talked about and I'm with God and he's in it and I'm way off in a swamp somewhere where God never sent me. And we can be very, very, very confused. But the answer is worshiping in spirit and in truth. And that doesn't come simple or easy. It takes a life of laying down and seeking, laying ourselves down and seeking him and seeking his will. I mean, I, I really, I guess there's an in-between Christianity, but it's very risky. It's a slippery slope, and I truly don't want anything to do with it because you could be like Saul. You could be like Hophni and Phinehas and Eli in the house of God and wake up one day and be completely cut off from God and no sacrifice. The same thing happened to Saul. He got to the place where there was no repenting. We know it happened to Esau. He got to the place where there was no turning back, no repenting, though he sought it with tears. So we need to take care of our own walk. Walk closely with the Lord. There are many heartaches we go through that, that we didn't need to. It wasn't God. It was us. It was us not walking close with him, not being surrendered, not spirit, worshiping in spirit and in truth, not just a shout, not just a prayer, not just coming to him when we have need, but our whole life is to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. And there's so many examples of people who got to that place of pouring out. That's what I see in Hannah. She gave her very best gift to him, and then we see her prophesying, and then we see her making a coat and taking it to the little prophet every year. And then we see when Samuel grows up and he becomes a, a prophet to the nation, and he goes and he makes the rounds because he's faithful. He goes and visits the people. He goes and checks on God's flock, and then he comes back to visit his mama. It's a very beautiful, beautiful story. She laid down her life from, for the Lord when she finally figured out what God wanted. So, praise you, Jesus. I don't know, I believe, I believe somebody, at least somebody needed to hear that tonight for some clarification. Uh, Father, we come before your throne tonight in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for your word. I ask that you would... Cause it to work inside of us, Lord. Let us be those that you're seeking for who worship in spirit and in truth with our life, with our desires, with our actions, with our words, with our deeds, with our heart, Lord, with our mind. Father, this word needs the medicine and the healing of your spirit and your people so desperately, Lord. Let us be like that little Samuel, like Hannah, sold out to your purpose, Lord, to be part of the healing, to be part of the bringing of your Holy Spirit into a dark world, Lord. Don't let us just sit on the sidelines and, and think of ourselves and our circumstances. Let us be those, Lord God, that you put into the earth for your purpose, for your will. Let your light shine through us. Let your spirit flow through us. And Lord, I, I know that it does. I see my brothers and sisters here tonight that I see your spirit working through them. But let it even be greater, Lord. We know challenges stand before us, Lord God, and we're, we're, we're just people. We're just some of your many, 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 many children, but you are great, and you are our God, and we believe you can do great and mighty things through us if we yield to you. And so tonight we desire to yield to you, to be taught by your spirit, to be led by your spirit. 
We love you, Father, and we submit our trials and our circumstances into your hands, and we ask for wisdom. We ask for guidance. We ask for correction. We ask for inspiration. We ask for everything that we have need of to walk with you, Father God. And we believe you, that you are a rewarder of them that diligently seek you. Help us to be diligent. Spur us, Lord, on to you every day, Lord God. Keep our hearts and minds in your spirit. We'll give you all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.